last week we began a, a, a two-part series on uh, the theme, God Gets It Right. So it's study uh, two still, but part two of that study, God Gets It Right, basically based around Romans. Um, when we look at the ourselves, at the uh, problems uh, that are around us, we tend to think of the problems that are out there. You know, there's a problem out there and I'm looking at it and I'm sitting here as the observer and the problem's out there. And then we tend to think of problems that we can fix and, of course, which we can take some credit. <laughs> and um, that's the nature of our humanity. And it may be pragmatic and we should do, I guess, whatever we can do to fix problems, but it's not real. Uh, we need God to get it right. That's our basic theme today. We just need God to get it right. Uh, I'm concerned that it's very easy for us to have, uh, if it's not a wrong way to speak, um, a pygmy God and a giant me, and the proportions need to change. We need a giant God and just acknowledge ourselves what we are. I don't even want to use a word for it, but you know, just, just let us be what we are. And uh, so we're talking about justification by faith, but it would be very easy to focus on us at that point. But my point today is that if we don't first focus on God, our justification will never be convincing. It's more important that God gets it right than I do. Can you see that? That's the big thing. Uh, It's more important that God gets it right. If he gets it right, then everything can follow on from there. Um, If there is no God who is right and does right, the world is meaningless and hopeless. That's, uh, I would think in this company, that would be axiomatic. We'd say, of course, that's right. If there's no God who is right and does right, the world is meaningless and it's hopeless. But God has. He's actually come to our world in Jesus Christ, A, to destroy sin and two, to create a kingdom in which there's only right. That's what our God's about. He's come to get it right. And we really need to know that God's done it right so we can hold our heads high, as that little song we've just sung is pointing out. So what we're going to do today is focus particularly, uh, or thirdly, we can say that uh, our Lord Jesus, uh, in the days of his flesh, prayed two prayers about what he was going to do. Uh, The first one is in John 17 and the second one uh, is prayed just in the Garden of Gethsemane which we referred to last week. But the first one, John 17, a a wonderful prayer. It's just, um, you can spend a long time just going through and savouring the various parts of John 17. There's seven prayers, seven requests Jesus makes and that if you look at all the times he actually asks something, seven times, and all of them have to do with the honour and glory of his Father. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Father, glorify your name and then glorify me. In other words, he wants uh, his Father to be glorified. He wants his Father to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. And then he wants the Father to, to give the glory to us as well. But it's all about the Father's glory in his prayer. And in the second prayer, he makes one request, but he repeats it three times that the Father's will would be done. Of course, he says, if it be possible, but he says, Father, what I really want. So the prayers that Jesus prays before he dies uh, give us a window into what he's actually accomplishing. And what he wants is the Father's glory. And what he wants is the Father's will. 
And if you think about it, he's living out his own prayer. When you pray, say, Our Father, hallowed be your name, sanctified be your name, holy be your name. Um, and uh, uh, your kingdom come and your will be... Do you see how, how the prayers of Jesus prior to the cross are all about uh, what him praying, if you like, his own prayer that he gave to us? Uh, and secondly, uh, oh, so, sorry, he's, he has the second prayer in which he wants his father's wills to... And um, he's all about his father's glory and will and wants to see... We want, we want to see now how that works out in what he's actually done. So we're actually talking about God doing something. We're not talking about something happening to Jesus, as I think I said last week. If we only look at the, from it as a human point of view, like 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, uh, then we will have a warped view of what the cross is. We actually need to hear what Jesus says, need to hear what the apostles say. So that's our point. So um, we'll need to look at it in that light. So in particular, now we come to Romans. Paul shows us what God is, that what God does is right and that he puts things right. This is about the third, fourth paragraph down. Paul shows us what God does is right and that he puts things right through Jesus and what he achieves on the cross. I was grateful to a person called Colin Cruz in his commentary on Romans for saying there are five ways in which Paul uses righteousness in Romans. And that's basically uh, the outline of the little study we're doing today. There are five ways in which Paul uses righteousness in Romans. And all these, according to John Piper, who likes to summarise things, uh, he says all these can be summed up by God's righteousness is God acting according to his own nature and for the sake of his name. So you've got a picture of righteousness uh, and uh, that's what we're talking about is righteousness. What is right? Uh, I'm using the word right because if I say righteous in some context, people say church, out there. If I say right, it's kind of more common, but strictly speaking, righteousness is being right in God's eyes. A righteousness, according to 1 John, is the fulfilling of the law. That's technically what righteousness is. Uh, so uh, righteousness is being right before God. Um, and of course, when God does what God does, according to his own nature, he is being righteous. So there, there's the meaning of the word. Um, so Paul is showing that and um, we're going to follow through those five ways in which the word is used. The first way in which word righteous is used in Romans and it's important for us to see all of these because they all have to do with our being justified by faith. You realise the word justify is simply the verbal form of, of the noun righteousness. It's kind of, you could get it right if you said when you are justified God righteifies us, you know, and then you've got the, because the, in, the, in the Greek it's the same word but a verb and a noun. So, um, so first, God is angry and judges what is wrong according to his righteousness. Uh, that's very clear uh, in chapter 18. I find it very interesting that God says the righteousness of God is being revealed, verse 17, verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed. Simultaneously, two things are happening. God's revealing something, his righteousness and his wrath. In one sense, they're the same action, but in different uh, different. Uh, targets if you like. God is angry, I use that word because it's the words used in the Bible. We have to 
shrouded around these days with saying that it's not simply sounding off because of being peeved. God is not peeved, he's grieved. Can you see a difference there? Uh, God is not just peeved because he can't get his own way, he's grieved that we're not understanding what life is. And so he's, and of course you're probably aware of the fact that Peter Forsyth, who's been quoted in these circles quite a lot, uh, says uh, that really what we're talking about is God's holy love. Uh, that is what we're really talking about. But nonetheless, anger is still there, and I think you'll see it in those verses. Inasmuch as God didn't want to have a great God and wanted to be great themselves, they've reversed the order, um, they, um, God is uh, revealing his wrath. I mean, it's as plain as day, isn't it? And it's quite practical. Uh, he gives people up to doing things that are inappropriate for human beings to do, confusing their sexuality, for example. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't such a thing as gender dysphoria. I wouldn't want to debate that. But can you see that where you willfully say that these things called male and female don't matter and that you can do it as you like, then God is giving us up to these kinds of things and all manner of other things that he gives us up to. Uh, because we're not doing his, uh, because we're not acknowledging him as God. So this is God's anger. It's not just human. You don't have a list of sins in Romans 1. You have a list of things that God is doing. Do you see that? It's not a list of sins. Inasmuch as people didn't want to have God in the thing, God gave them up to do. Do you see that? We're talking about what God is doing in our society. God is angry. He's working in our society. We're preaching the gospel. We're announcing the righteousness of God. That's our gospel. But at the same time, God is revealing his wrath. So God's righteousness is alive and active. I guess that's what I'm saying. So he wouldn't be God if he didn't. And he certainly wouldn't be right. His righteousness is against us. Well, that's just the beginning. In one sense, that's where our humanity stops. That's wrong. So we want to punish it, we want to stop it, we want to change it somehow or another. Uh, so anger or wrath is only the beginning. You haven't really started to explore God's wrath uh, when you've said that. Uh, it goes on in chapter 2 uh, as well as in chapter 1, and I think I'll just read one verse there, I think it's verse 9, chapter 2 verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress. In other words, there's wrath being revealed right now in the present, chapter 1, but in chapter 2 there's righteousness in the future, there's wrath in the future as well. There will be tribulation and distress. It couldn't be clearer, could it? For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Nobody misses out. So God's righteousness, uh, and it's important for us to have that in place or we won't understand what it's saying to us in chapter 3. Second, um, God's righteousness. God loves his world and he has plans for it. Uh, in other words, so he's, he's going to keep, God shows his righteousness by being faithful to himself, to quote John Piper. And uh, that's what his righteousness is, faithfulness to himself all of the time. So, for example, chapter 3 and verse 3 uh, to 8, and especially verse 5, he says... Um, what if some were unfaithful? I was using the word faithfulness and unfaithfulness, 
But he's, uh, later on he shows that he's meaning righteousness and righteousness. For verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. So what is he talking about there? He's saying, you've got an unfaithful people called the Jews, but God has been faithful to them. In other words, they are unrighteous, but God goes on showing his righteousness by being faithful to his people, but yet faithful to his people according to the promises that he's actually made to them. So faithfulness, so righteousness means God's faithfulness to his own. He's not a legalist who's only interested in him being right. It's interesting, isn't it, whether we, our understanding of righteousness just simply has me being right. Uh, but here God is concerned uh, that we should be right, that everything should be right. Um, He's not a legalist who only interested in him being right. He reveals his rightness by promising what he will do about us. So he's against us, but he's also about us. Now, some examples of that, which are not in your notes, but I just, verses I've loved for a long time, Isaiah 59, 16, uh, that actually show what I mean here, what God's going to do. Isaiah 59, 16. Um, the Lord saw what Israel was about, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation. See righteousness and salvation in parallel? From God's point of view, righteousness is not just me being right, from God's point of view, righteousness is salvation. If God's going to be right, he's going to have to save somebody. Or God will say, I've not been right. Do you see the connection? Very strong, isn't it? He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put a garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself as, with zeal as a cloak. And according to their deeds, so will he repay and wrath to his adversaries and a repayment to his enemies. In other words, he'll rescue his people and he'll do what is right, uh, moving in on the action to sort it all out. Uh, another one is uh, Isaiah 61, verse 10. It's over the page. He says, I will greatly rejoice, this is a uh, prophet saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation He's covered me, sorry, this is the, um, the anointed servant of the Lord who is speaking. He has clothed me, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus quoted the beginning of that chapter at his first sermon in Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here's the rest of the chapter. So how does Jesus go out into his ministry? I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. He's on about God being good. It's great, isn't it? That's a strong action that Jesus goes out. He says, I'm going to show Israel my father. And out he goes to do it. And as a bridegroom, he decks himself to go out and get his bride. And then Jeremiah 32, verse 16, 33, verse 16. It is. 
33, verse 16. Um, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called, that is Jerusalem, the Lord is our righteousness. Do you see, for God to be righteousness, righteous, he wants to get us right. And God is vindicated and God is shown to be holy by bringing us into holiness. Allah, John 17. Can you see? Jesus is praying in that light. So, God loves the world and he plans, plans for it. But now, God reveals his righteousness. And here we come to Romans particularly, in chapter 1 and verse 17. Um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See the connection between uh, salvation and righteousness again. Salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's a present tense or is is revealed. It's a, a living reality right now from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So righteousness of God, um, as we've seen, can mean God's action uh, because he's revealing it. God doesn't say, here's a list of rules, Grant, see if you can keep him, and that's righteousness. God's revealing something. Do you follow? If, if, if uh, I reveal something, <laughs> if I take my jacket off so you can see my shirt's clean, I've revealed something. Here's God showing you himself. That's it, isn't it? So it's a revelation of God that we're actually watching. We're not talking about human beings' behave. We're talking about what God does. Uh, now, the, um, the pundits uh, go backwards and forwards and they argue about the Greek words and so forth and say, well, in this context, is righteousness of God equal who God is or what he gives? And it can go backwards and forwards. And this is why I like um, uh, Colin Cruz, um, because he says, well, here's the arguments for one, and here's the arguments for the other. They've both got very convincing elements. He says, I think Paul probably meant both. You know, if you're talking to, if you're talking to me, you want to know if it's you or me. But if you're talking to God, he's talking about when I do something, it affects my people. And the way I'm going to show myself righteous is by calling you righteous. So from God's point of view, it doesn't have to be different. No, that's my, you might, your brain might work like mine and you say that's unsatisfactory. I'm okay with that, but I'm just telling you, telling, te- telling you technically it can mean both. And Colin Cruz suggests that we take it as meaning both. In other words, God is saying, I'm revealing something here. I'm showing you what I'm like. I'm showing you what I'm doing. And it means something that you get as a gift because that's, if you didn't, if you, you could argue about that verse and you could also argue about the verse in chapter 3 uh, when he uses the same phrase, the righteousness of, of God, and you can argue the same verse, 21. Uh, but the whole point is that both things are true anyway in Romans. So why not just let it be and say here is what's being revealed. God is getting something right. Now that's what we're really emphasising today. And in particular, what he's getting right is something that profoundly affects God's attitude to us. And it's all of God's revelation. Here's what he does. So, do you follow? Not a big me here. 
a big God. And the more we get our eyes onto God and the less we get our eyes onto ourselves, the clearer justification by faith will be. Our problem with justification by faith and whether we're forgiven or not or whether we, what, or what our experience is, is that we're looking at ourselves too much and not enough at God. This is about God. It's a revelation. So you've got to have your eyes open and you've got to be hearing something. So righteousness, it can mean either. That's the first little dot point. Second, don't miss the meaning. God's doing something right in a sinful world. I love it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.9, he says, we've received the ministry of righteousness. <laughs> and Peter, good old practical Peter, says the same thing in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, where he actually talks about having a ministry of going out of righteousness. Do you see these people that were going out and they're saying, I'm about God getting it right. I like it. And so they've got something to announce to a sad world that's fiddling around with its little bits, I think this is right, I think that's right, and arguing about it and never getting it straight. And God steps into the scene and says, well, I'm going to do it. God wonders that there's nobody who can't do it. And so he puts on armour and he comes in to do it himself. Uh, God is doing something right in a sinful world, so Christ is doing something for us. So we've looked at against us, we've talked about us as the prophecies, and now we're talking about for us. Jesus bears the rightful disdain and condemnation and wrath of God on sin, 3.25. Have a look at that. We've looked at that, probably looked at it several times, but we need to look at it here. When God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. He put forth that is, it couldn't be clearer. Here's something God does. He puts forth Jesus as a propitiation. He says, wrath, yes, there is wrath. If they're sinners, then the answer to that is, I am, dis- I am disgusted with that. I don't like it. I'm going to destroy it. And so God puts Jesus there as a propitiation. And the wrath of God falls on him. And Jesus knows it. And it's awful. But it's God doing what is right to sin. But he's put forward. Can you see that? Here is a big God. Don't worry about your experience here. Think about God. He's doing something enormous here. He's putting forth Jesus. And he's saying he is a propitiation for your sins. Wonderful. So Jesus bears the rightful disdain and condemnation and wrath of God on sin. Until this happens, it, and this is the argument, because if, it, if this doesn't, if the, my, the line of reasoning here doesn't follow, then this verse won't make sense. Until this happens, it appears that God gets excused. But not now, because he says... God put him forward as a propitiation to be received. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over. He hadn't been righteous before. Sorry, say that again. He hadn't showed his full righteousness up until now. He hadn't shown that aspect of righteousness in which righteousness must do something about that's wrong. He hadn't been doing that. You think about all the people you know that get away with blue murder. That's the way we talk about it. 
Well, that's what he's talking about here. All sorts of people get away with all sorts of stuff. And he says, well, in times past, God's passed over former sins. Not now. My son's come. This is the time to fix it. And what needs to be fixed is that there needs to be a proper demonstration of what sin deserves. And it happens. This is one man's act of righteousness, he calls it. Jesus here is being righteous. 5.18. Wonderful. Um, As one man's trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to righteousness, justification and life for all men. What a wonderful thing. This is one man doing the right thing. Jesus then is raised and he's declared to be what he is, righteous. I love that. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was, he was, Christ was vindicated. It's the same idea. It's just a different uh, aspect because he was vindicated in the sense that God said, uh, man said, you are a guilty person and they killed him. God said, you are a righteous person and raised him. He was raised uh, and he was vindicated. That is, he was justified by being raised up from the dead. God said, Jesus, you amongst all the men of all the world have done what is right and I raise you from the dead as the first fruits of all who will come. Because as it says in Romans 4 verse 30, he was raised for our justification. He bore our sins, we bear his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, isn't it? About verse 20. We'll look at that probably next week. But can you see that uh, it's all about Christ being acknowledged to have done the right thing. Here's something clean in a dirty world. Here's something to be proud of in a world we can feel ashamed of. Here's a God to look up to when we tend to look down on everybody that's not like us. Can you follow? God's about something absolutely wonderful and we need to get it clearly in our minds. So he's raised to be, uh, declared to be what he is. And it's interesting when you read 1 Timothy 3.16, which I've just quoted, Paul actually begins it by saying, great is the mystery of godliness. He, what's the mystery of your godliness? He! Did you get that? We say, what's, the, what's my godliness? Well, we count up. Uh, do you follow? All wrong. Great is the mystery of our godliness. How am I going to be a godly man or woman? He! Look at him. He was put to death in the flesh. He was raised in the spirit. It's vindicated in the spirit. And received up into glory. Get your picture of Christ right. And then you know your vindication and your justification. So Christ, God reveals uh, his righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, there's the fourth way in which righteousness is actually technically used as a word in Romans. Uh, And I've got all the references there. Back in 117, I'm saying, yes, we can say 117 is about your or my justification. In it, the righteousness 
the righteousness, if you like, of God, but also God's righteousness is being revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, see, because it's actually said, the reason why technically you have, you've got pro- your problem either way, the wrath of God's being revealed, righteousness of God is being revealed. What's the wrath of God? An action of God. What's the righteousness of God? An action of God, right? But then the righteousness is to be received by faith. So what is it? God doing something or me receiving something? Go figure. Both. Do you see why we're arguing this way and why the pundits, as we call them, argue in this way? So, um, and the same in chapter 3, I think, for myself, I like to read 3.21 this way. The righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the cross. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, and I give the emphasis there to what happens to us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, for all who believe. For there's no distinction. Just follow that's uh, the way we can read those words. And chapter 4 verse 5, I go over there and it says, The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's clearly talking about a gift that God looks at you who trust in his son, and the the word trust is sometimes repeated, uh, for faith to those who believe. Why does he repeat himself? Was it the faithfulness of Christ in which we believe? Rather, says Carson, to actually believe this faith in it, we believe, in other words, there's an emphasis here. What are you looking at? Pygmy me? Great God. Do you follow? This is all about Believing. This is not about you. This is about him and whom you're looking at. So um, God actually comes and says, because you trust in my son, you are credited with having pleased me just in the same way and in the same action where Christ was killed under the wrath of God and raised up from the dead, we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. Isn't that? That's it. That's what it's saying. We're there in Christ and Christ looks at us that he's looked at his raised son and said, you too, justified. It's good, isn't it? If we're looking in the right spot. We are credited with the righteousness Jesus showed in his life and his death. All of it. And I take that from 2 Corinthians 5. He was made sin who knew no sin. That in him, crucified with him and raised with him, we might be the righteousness of God. See the connection there between us being justified and this being an action of God? Wonderful, isn't it? So, because Jesus is declared to be righteous in his resurrection, so are we, 4.25 of Romans. Now, there's nothing as exhilarating as this, as you've probably seen by my own enthusiasm, said he um, uh, to himself, uh, who does not need somehow or another some remonstration at times 
to get your mind around this. Who doesn't need to be exhorted to stop trusting pygmy self and look at a great God who gets it right? And so, there's nothing as exhilarating as this. One of my favourite, and I guess maybe yours in the Bible, one of the favourite passages in the Bible, since we have been righteified, justified by faith, by God getting it right, and we trusting in him, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's our subject for next week, so I'll leave it for there, but we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've obtained access into this grace in which we stand. This is the fruits, if you like, of justification. We rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. So we're people now of faith and hope and love. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We've got such a head of steam that it can take you through some rough patches. And don't we need to know that? In fact, we could even know that it's going to be a benefit to us knowing this, knowing this, that suffering produces endurance or patient endurance and endurance produces character and character, well, the world just gives up so quickly our government should do something about this and we're becoming so weak as a society, is that true? why are we becoming true? because we don't know about justification by faith if we knew about justification by faith if we knew what God has done to get it right we'd have some hope we'd have some love we'd have some faith and we'd have some reliability and we'd have some stickability when life was tough and when pain is real, knowing that even in this God is still doing it right. What a wonderful thing. Hope doesn't, and we've got, and then in that context, we haven't got much right in our, our present day, but so we've got full of hope, and hope does not leave us disappointed. I love that. Why? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. I said at a funeral recently, people talk about hanging in and about being courageous in the face of cancer, which this person had. And I said, I'm not really so sure, knowing the couple, um, that they were sustained by courage as by love. And the husband who'd lost his wife nodded and said, yeah, that's the way it was. What sustains us? It's not primarily courage, it's love. God, when he gets things right, has got you in his sights. He wants you right. And he can do something by sending his son that puts you right. And that's love, pure and simple and profound and enduring even in the midst of difficulty. Hope doesn't put us to shame because love's has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly and lifted them up so that they could be righteous. So you can see um, that it's an exhilarating thing. Fifth, fifth way in which God's word uses the word righteousness in here in Romans. God's righteousness is now being revealed in us. We who are grateful recipients of God's gift in Christ are made eager by the Spirit to do what is right because we've been made right with God. Now that's spelled out in 16, 16 to 18, but I'll just quote chapter 8 and verse 4. 
uh, because it probably says it as quickly and easily as we need to at the moment. Uh, God, verse 3, God has done. There's God getting it right. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Peri is the word meaning it's uh, on account of, to do with sin. So here's all this mess, this pile of maggots, this abominable rebellion against God. And Jesus sends Jesus into the mess to absorb it into himself and to bear what God rightfully would do with that so that he can then raise him from the dead as a person who's acknowledged the righteousness of God and um, could he sent his own son in, in the light and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. In order that the righteous requirement of the law probably given that it's singular, referring to the great commandment of love, that's probably an easy way to understand it, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, peripatio, those who just walk around in everyday life, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And again, it's been pointed out that it's not us who fulfills it, but that it might be fulfilled. It's passive. When you do an I good work, it is active in the sense that we're active from another point of view. It is a passive active. We're doing this because God is good. We're doing this because we sense this is what God's about and what we want to be joining in. We're walking by the Spirit. And chapter 6 is the same thing. It spells it out in quite a lot of detail in chapter 6. But we do righteous deeds, but they're nothing that we can hold up to God and say, how'd you like my Tuesday, God? <laughs> Don't ever do it. Don't start there. Look at God and what he's done to put you in right standing, walk in the glory of that. And sure, what God has done will ensure. Now, that's a favourite word for politicians. We're going to ensure this. Well, I always, gr- always groan when they say it because they can't assure a thing. Depends on us, polit- uh, on us, us citizens. That's not going to work. <laughs> but when God does something, he ensures that those who walk according to the Spirit, and that primarily means, that first of all means trusting. You can't walk by the Spirit without trusting. Walking in the Spirit is teaching you to teach, say God is Father. Walking in the Spirit is teaching you to say God is good. Walking in the Spirit is enabling you then to do good works. But you can't have the latter without the primer, former. So here we find that righteousness is fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh. That means walking according to rules and regulations. But walk according to the Spirit who's revealed these wonderful things to us. Well, let's just give a, a, say a prayer of thanks to our Father. Dear Lord God and Father, how we bless you that you have acted decisively in regard to our miserable world. You've never even called it miserable because you make great plans and hopes for it. And now look what you've done. 
sent your own son and not even spared him in order that you may raise him from the dead and call me and you and us here righteous because we look at your son. Grant us, Father, to walk in these things, not even primarily for our own enjoyment, although it will be for that, but for your glory, Father, for it is your glory to justify us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.